With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So one of my favorite guests passed away. You know, a lot of my podcasts I do so that they're evergreen, that they have good value about how to be successful no matter when you listen to it. And PJ O'Rourke, who passed away yesterday, a great writer, a great political commentator. He wrote books like Parliament of Horrors. That was one of his classics. We talked about how the hell did this happen? The election of 2016 or Give War a Chance or Eat the Rich. So see, he was a very satirical, funny political commentator. He was a very good writer and he was a very polarizing. I really enjoyed talking with him and, and learning his approach to writing and commenting on today's events. So we figured we'd re-release this very fascinating podcast, a very fascinating guy. Rest in peace. Here's PJ O'Rourke. So I'm here with PJ O'Rourke. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You're, Thank you. You're uh, not only, of course, one of America's most astute political commentators, but an amazing humorist. You started out... Uh, you were editor-in-chief, right, of the National Lampoon in the 70s, yeah. mm -hmm. back in, like, John Belushi days, yeah. like, all the way back. Yeah. And you've written many bestsellers, uh, Parliament of Horrors, Give War a Chance. Uh, what was the name of the economics one? You had this really great economics it's one. It's called On on the Wealth of Nations. And you have this great way of simply explaining complicated things or supposedly complicated things in a humorous way. Yeah. And, in fact, with that one, you said it's basically— Economics is something we we do every day, and it's only complicated to economists. Yes, it's first principles and moral ideas, you know. And that actually, what book was that? It was uh, um, I can't remember what it was called. Which says maybe I've written more books and I've got things sixteen to say. books. Yeah, eighteen. Eighteen, 18. books. Anyway, that was one where I went around to all the lousy, poor countries in the world. Not, not, all, more, not all more lousy, but went around to the poor countries in the world and the rich countries in the world trying to figure out what made the difference. You know, why did Tanzania with, uh, you know, no population explosion problems, uh, pretty peaceful landscape, political landscape, uh, lots and lots of resources. Why was it one of the, probably the poorest country in the world that wasn't in the middle of combat? And on the other hand, Hong Kong, which has got nothing, nothing. I mean, they have to import their water, you know, and yet they're, you know, on a per capita basis, one of the richest countries in the world. Now, right. What's going on here? You know, so that, yeah, that was. What my, is going on? 
I want to ask that, but then we're going to get to your book. How the hell did this happen? The election in 2016. I talk about our favorite topic, Donald Trump. Yes, exactly. Everybody's favorite topic in yeah. the world. But how does that happen with Tanzania and Hong Kong? Well, it, one of the things is property rights. Property rights and rule of law are probably the two most important things that make a country prosperous. Uh, you have to have firm property rights, some, something that keep an eye on with China, because China does not have their property rights stuff very well straightened out. And then you have to have rule of law. It doesn't have to be A1 law. I mean, it can be like a very, you know, it might be an imperfect rule of law. But what does it, it mean, to, rule of law? I don't, well, I don't know the Well, rule of phrase. law means that you can depend upon, like, the, the, the courts and the police departments and so on to basically to protect your person and to protect your property. Now, like so, the, so, so I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but like, no. take a country like it's in the middle, yeah. like let's say Argentina. Yeah. All right. So you have police, and you have a kind of a first world country, sort of, but the police can't be trusted. You you don't know if you go to a police van if they're gonna rob you or protect you. Yeah, I I don't actually happen to know in person about the situation in Argentina, but even let's say let's stipulate that you can trust the police, you probably cannot trust the court system. Right. You know, and, and it may be just confused or it may be corrupt. It may be a combination of the two. Argentina's got its property rights thing pretty well done. But, of course, any country that's every now and then elects a socialist government, socialism per definitionally violates property rights. You know, socialism is saying, okay, we're going to take from this group of people and hand out to this group of people with no respect for who owns what because we determine who owns what. So, well, how do you really feel about socialism? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> love it, love it, love it. So, uh, you know, you can have imperfect law. Hong Kong, for instance, has imperfect law. I mean, it's not a democracy and it's not, you know, I mean, it's over-influenced by the mainland Chinese and so on. But the law is dependable. The police are honest. The courts are, are transparent, you know. And um, the laws may not be the ideal laws that you would want, but, they're, but, but you're confident that they will be enforced. And so you can operate with confidence in the business uh, 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 arena. And that's really what makes prosperity. Um, Tanzania, while it's not a violent place, and the people in the government I met were likable enough, it, nonetheless, it's disorganized. They can't. It's not even clear where officially their capital is. You know, they've got some new capital they're building in the middle of nowhere. But countries love to build new capitals. You know, and that, that always confuses things because the actual capital is Arusha, but but there's a theoretical capital out in the middle of nowhere. And then if you go down to uh, the coast, uh, that's actually where all the government offices are. So it's like completely confusing. And, you know, it's partly because it what always has been a very poor country. It's they, they don't have adequate policing. You know, I, I don't – I didn't run across a lot of complaints that the police were corrupt. They're just not there. You know, I mean uh, – you know. Well, uh, I, let me play devil's advocate just a little. What about places like, let's say, Israel, which has some quasi-socialist stuff going yeah. on, but – it's a very uh, strong place to start a company and build a company. You know, lots of uh, Definitely innovation happening there. The rule of law. Yeah. And, and property rights can endure a certain amount of, like, uh, large social safety net, you know. I draw a difference between socialism and a country with large benefits. In fact, I went to Sweden and Cuba. So I said, here's socialism that works. Here's socialism that really doesn't work. And, you know, part of that, of course, is the Swedes. Milton Friedman was once being um, pestered by a, a, a Swedish social democrat, you know, economist. And he said, in Sweden, you know, we have no poverty. And Milton Friedman said, that's interesting because among Swedes in the United States, we have no poverty. 
you know so part of it are you know there there are cultural characteristics right. to this to this too you know and, and israelis are extremely hard working extremely innovative you know and um uh, fired by uh, uh, knowledge that they need to be uh, economically successful in order to deal with the situation that they're in. So, so what I want I want to talk about two things. One is how you've had to have such you got to have basically the dream career all your life. You have you have the kind of job and career you must have dreamed as as a kid. And but I and didn't. Yeah. You, you, okay, but we'll get to that. Yeah. And then I want to talk about how the hell did this happen? The name of this book. Sure. And. We, we now have a president that you did not expect it to happen. Oh, yeah. In fact, you've been kind of a lifelong Republican, and you endorsed Hillary Clinton for this election. Grudgingly, yeah. Good, grudgingly. Very grudgingly. And yeah. you, uh, you write about that in this book. Like, when I see a book like this, the book itself as, as a whole is funny. I mean, even the title, How the Hell Did This Happen, yeah. suggests that it's about the election. You say the election of 2016, but it, it suggests not only that it's about the election, but you're going to— present some things in almost an absurdist manner yeah. inside the book because yeah. it's about something that's very high stakes and professional a presidential right. election yeah. but you're call, but you're right away saying how the hell did this happen yeah it was joke. amateur hour you know i mean for something that's highly professional and extremely important it was amateur hour right and then yeah. so then throughout the book you kind of explain why with each candidate why it was amateur hour like yeah. how ludicrous yeah either their campaign promises yeah. were or their campaign strategies or how the debates were set up or, yeah. or every every aspect of it actually. And so 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 there's a lot, there's humor on like, let's say three different levels. There's kind of the, the overall topic, there's the way you structure the book, and then there's kind of the line item jokes almost yeah, exactly. in the book. Yeah, right. And like how, how far, like if you, if, in a book like this, there's a danger almost. You have to have that line of like, okay, we're talking about a very serious topic where I'm trying to impart an opinion and information, but I still have to be funny because that's I'm a humorist and that's what, how I'm setting up this book. How, how, this is almost going to sound like a naive question, so forgive me if it is, but how long do you go writing before you have to include another humorous thing? Like, how, did you pressure yourself to be, okay, it's been three paragraphs, now I got to throw in a joke? I was years, million years ago, like back in the seventies. I was having some fight with my girlfriend, and I stayed for a couple of days over at Doug. I borrowed Doug Kenny's apartment, uh, one of the founders of Lampoon, and he was off someplace. And uh, he had some a manuscript in his typewriter, and of course, you know, I couldn't resist looking. And and the manuscript would go blah 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 blah. Insert joke here. Blah 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 blah. Insert huh? joke here. <laughs> blah blah blah. So he knew though, where the beats. Yeah, needed to he go. needed where the beats had to. He knew needed. Uh, uh, to, yeah, and and, and after you do that for a long time, you you, you get a feeling about you know you know when's you know you need a punchline here. You need a punchline there. Because attention spans, particularly for books, are. I mean, I don't know the statistics on these things, but people have so many more choices for their they attention. Yeah. They yeah. instead of reading this yeah. book, they could read Donald Trump's tweets, for instance. That's, yeah, you know, there's, exactly. There's a exactly. billion things out yeah. there. So for you to keep someone's attention, how do you, other than being just interesting and provocative about the election, you've got to have a sense of, okay, insert joke here. And, That's and, right. And, and how yeah. uh, would you, was that a, a distinct pressure you gave yourself or did it just naturally happen as you were writing? Well, a little bit of both, but it's always there. You know that there are a lot of ways that, that let's see, I've got a little thing that I do about this, you know, particularly for journalist students, is that, that, that any good piece of nonfiction writing it's got to be informative or educational um, or entertaining. 
okay, now, it's great if it's all three. But listen, if your information is so startling, so important, that just the information, that will carry the thing. But it still needs, like... The beats. It's still, if, if it's if it's well, that way, yeah, it needs every page of yeah. something startling. Well, I, 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 yeah, I'll get to that um, because you know if your news is that uh, a pirated airplane just flew into to, to the World Trade Center, you can stop with information. You know now at education, which is a little tougher, is when you tell people you don't tell something, don't tell them something they didn't know. You're telling something that he did know, but you're telling him what it means. And that, right. of course, is what most of the op-ed people, some with more success than others, say in the New York Times, do. And entertainment is simply keeping people's attention. There are lots of ways to do it. You know, you can be charming. You can be funny. You can be um, the world is about to end, so you have to pay attention to, you know, you can be startling. You can be vulgar. Uh, uh, Trump is very good at, at keeping people's attention. You know? Right. And so I said, you know, and as a nonfiction writer, if you intend to be some kind of nonfiction writer, you have to always keep those three things in mind. If it doesn't have any information or educational value, that is to say no information or no explication in it, it better be damn entertaining, okay? Thurber could, Thurber could do it, can you, you know? If it's all explication, if it's all education, uh, you had better be really good at explaining yourself to people. But you'll be, you'll find it easier if you stick some entertainment in there. If it's educational, it's yeah. got to say something they don't know. But and again, it's got to say it pretty quickly and mm -hmm. often. Yeah, quickly and often. You got you got kind of tell them, tell them you told them, tell them you know, you tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them. You know. And, I mean, but, here I think with how the hell did this happen? You have the information because you kind of go through. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's the campaign. Here, I mean, it was the the information uh, writes itself in the sense that you're mm. going through a timeline of, it's in of there a high already, stakes event. Yeah, yeah and it's and, organized already because it's a chronological. And, and the education, like we all know what happened in the election. Yeah. Trump won. We watched some debates. Yeah. We listened to the primaries. Yeah. Everybody else to different things. But you kind of have different ways of presenting it. Like you, for instance, um, you know, you present. You know their camp their their campaign strategy. I mean their campaign. Um, what do you call it? Their platforms, yeah. their issues in entertaining ways. Yeah. So and Bernie I try Sanders, and take them apart. You know, I try and take the, take the platform apart, examine it carefully. You know. Right. And and again, you have this way of taking the complicated and making it simple. Yeah. And that's often the the bridge is humor to do that. Yeah. Um. But then it's of course entertaining. You're. You, oh, and the other educational thing. I like how, for instance, you have weird chapters like, uh, you know, this is what would have happened if all the first ladies, yeah. like the, the men, yeah. run for president, but then the, but first, then the ladies first ladies run, ladies run the country. And you describe like what would have happened in yeah. each case. Like yeah. we're we're out of slavery in 1800 because yeah. Sally Hemings would yeah, just right. abolish slavery. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, uh, you know, so you have you have ways of kind of like with each chapter. Okay, how am I going to twist this and make it interesting? Mm -hmm. So you kind of do all three things with this, which I think is most the most yeah, successful thing. Yeah, a couple could of do. the chapters like that one about the first ladies, another one about like picking our president by who we'd go on a road trip with. And you think, oh, Trump, you know, golf, private jets, and you know, think again, think again, what it really be like with him, cooped up with him, you know, for a long period of time. Um, some of the chapters are really pure entertainment. And then I've got like a chapter or two in there, like where the heck this weird primary and caucus system came from, which is actually mostly information, mostly, yeah. mostly educational. You know, I mean, yeah. we all know they exist, you know, but nobody knows the history of these things. I didn't either. I had to look it up. Well, well it's fascinating too. You mentioned um, how 
most voters in a primary, I forgot the exact percentage number you say, but this yeah, high number either. of voters in a primary are basically over the age of 50. Yeah. And I yeah. remember there was one time I was, this is several years ago, I was thinking of running for Congress. Yeah. And I called up some people and and got some good advice. And the advice was only campaign in senior citizen homes because they win they every vote. primary for local elections. They do vote. <laughs> Yeah. So, so. Oh yeah, yeah. I forget what the percentage was either, but it was like a very small percentage of eligible voters. I think it was like eighty-six percent. You said so, some abnormally high number. Uh, yeah, but I mean, what, what, you know, who, who gave us Clinton and Trump as the candidates? That came down, according to New York Times analysis, at least that came down to only fourteen percent of eligible voters. Huh. Of all the people who are eligible to vote in the United States, it was just 14% who decided the caucuses and the primaries. That was the the, the, the margin in there. So compare that to how many people, uh, in just in terms of percentage of eligible voters, how many people vote in the general election? Oh, well, presidential election brings out more than usual. I forget what, exactly what the percentage is, but it's not overwhelming. You know I mean? It's not like, whoa, my gosh. It's not, like not, 90%. One those, not one of those Soviet elections where 104% right. of the people voted, you know? And, uh, it's like 40% or something. It's, yeah, around 50. If we're, yeah. It's, it's around 40 for congressional, so like 50 plus. Uh, we might have hit 60. This was a pretty good turnout year. Not record, but uh, uh, but pretty good turnout. Actually, first Obama. Um, uh, presidential run, I think, was the highest modern turnout. All right. So and, and you can't compare them because when you go back into the 19th century, you're talking about only property white males. You know, so sure, it was easy to get them out. You know, I mean, they, um, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, until relatively recently, like maybe a generation before you were born, only a small number of Americans were even allowed to vote. I mean, half, yeah, it wasn't half the that, country was out of action because yeah, there were I mean, women you know, before women don't get to vote until the 1920s, you know. Um, blacks were denied to vote by various means up until the 19, end of the 1960s. Uh, kids couldn't vote. You had to be 21 to vote until I was in college, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it was. And then there were all sorts of groups who were discouraged from voting or sort of coerced and devoting the way the the block captain and 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 the precinct captain you know and the ward healers you know wanted them to vote all the all the ghettoized immigrants whether they were living in little italy you know whether they were chinese you know whether they were jewish they had the democratic city apparatus like kind of showing them what to vote for you know and not you know many of these people spoke english not so well you know, and were a little mystified by the American political system, which was completely different from any place that they've been. So, you know, the block captain would come down and say, you, you vote here, you vote here. Well, you know, it's interesting because in this election, I think, and you you made a very interesting statement towards the end. It might have been the last chapter or second to last chapter uh, where you basically said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase it how you from how you said it. But this wasn't so much a let's say black versus white or Republican versus Democrat or liberal versus conservative kind of election. But this is people who felt they had no control over things in their life versus people who felt they controlled everything. So, yeah. and I thought that was yeah. very astute because what happened is the people who felt they had no control, they loved both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And there were people on, who voted, you know, by by means of vote face between primary and general election. There are people who voted for, quite a few people who voted for both 
Yeah, Bernie, Bernie Sanders in the primary, and then Donald and, Trump. And Donald Trump in, in uh, general. Right, and I think I think that it was is very accurate, regardless of what they stood for. I think yeah. Donald Trump, we we stood for disruption. Yeah, he yeah. he stood for disruption. Right, we yeah. it's almost unclear now what he stood for, Quite didn't unclear. stand for. Yeah. yeah, and and yet he represent like you pointed out very clearly. We knew exactly what Hillary Clinton stood for, yeah. which is business in, as in, usual. Actually. In way too much detail. If you yeah. listen to any of her campaign speech, it was like, you know, stop, stop. You know, I get it. <laughs> so, so like, given the problems on both sides, which you point out, you know, so much, and I actually, I want to get to the primaries too and all that, but why did you endorse anybody? Who, oh, who did, it was Do you want of, to do a road trip with Hillary Clinton? Yeah, no, of course not. It, it was partly for surprise value. I must confess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having a little goof, but I did decide... And I don't remember exactly. I think the thing that put me over on not, I did, I did decide early on not to vote for Trump. And I think it was his insult of John McCain was the thing that where he went too far. But I'll tell you, the other thing that had been bugging me all along was the, um, um, the scapegoating of immigrants. I mean, you just don't do that in America. I just think that, hey, that was like, to me, that was like his his version of calling um, Trump supporters a basket of deplorables. You know, his scapegoating of immigrants. I, I agree with you because, yeah. of course, America has been built on immigration. Right. But essentially, what he did was is take the the advice of pollsters combined yeah. yes, with his did. media yeah. talents, yeah. Yeah. and he said, "Okay, I'm either going to be president or not. Yeah. This is the path to become president." So yeah. he did it. Yeah. I, if I he, have if a he didn't do that. Then he wouldn't be president. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. Just as if, uh, uh, just as although you know, Brexit was framed in like a protest against EU mattress measurements and cheese naming rules and so on. It was actually about immigrants, you know. And uh, actually, NPR did a pretty good debrief. They went around after Brexit and they talked to, did man on the street, woman on the street things, with in districts that had voted heavily for Brexit. And all people would start out with a little bit of, you know, uh, with a little bow to, you know, oppressive EU regulations. And then they would get right to, this isn't the England I grew up in, you know, and like the Polish plumber problem and mm. so on and so forth. And that's, of course, why um, you see uh, Le Pen uh, getting such popularity in France is. right yeah. now. And yeah. I mean, as you mentioned also, it's the largest political party in France. Even whether she wins or not, it's still yeah. the largest political party. Yeah, it absolutely is. And yeah, and she's doing that same, not, you know, I, 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 I think it resonates even better in France than it did in, in Britain. Britain wouldn't, the British are too conscious of morality and so on to, to, to vote very, very few of them actually vote for an anti-immigrant candidate but they could they could make an anti-immigrant gesture with the brexit vote you know without sort of right without sort of violating their conscience uh the uh now the immigrants in britain are uh like immigrants in the united states tend to uh uh act you know acclimatize and acclimate and 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 and, and get absorbed into the society much much quicker than they do on in continental europe I mean, I, I think the, the, I mean French French immigrants are much more alienated than you know most British immigrants that you meet, especially like people who came over say twenty thirty years ago from Pakistan or Bangladesh or something or India, are more British than the British. You know, so 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 with with this election here in the U.S., let's get right down to it. How the hell did this happen? Like in the primaries, it's like Trump says he was up against eighteen people. They all seemed like. 
you know, like every everybody at some point, the the media had declared, "Oh, here's our candidate." Yeah. Whether it's Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ben Carson, uh, what the hell did happen? Yeah. Well, I'm a little little. I really don't have a quick and easy answer to that. I was a little mystified myself. I thought if there was going to be a rebellion in the United States to go by prior experience, it would center around somebody a social conservative, somebody like uh, Mike Huckabee. And as a matter of fact, I have a chapter in here which I reread not too long ago about Mike Huckabee when I where I am. And I, so I you tear Mike, him apart. I do, and Mike, I apologize. I, I you know, I I was uh, I don't like social conservatives. It's true. I mean, I don't like the ideology of social conservatives, but I, I have nothing against Mike himself. And actually, he looks like a much better choice for you know with hindsight. But I thought that that's where the rebellion would, the rebellion against the status quo would focus around the social conservatives. Like, although let me let me play devil's advocate on that. I mean, social conservatives have had you know four or five decades of candidates to kind of make their stance against the establishment, and they just never really win. I mean, even we've been, right. through, we've been through Reagan and two Bushes yeah. and, you know, they all act like social conservatives, but they never really were. No, no, they're not. In fact, you know, actually in the case of senior George Bush, really not. Uh, he's totally like a yeah. Northeastern liberal. Yeah. And I'm yeah. Not, by, by the way, I'm not saying I'm apolitical. I'm not saying good yeah. or bad on that. Yeah, it's just, just, he's just a not fact. what yeah. he presented yeah. to the public. I mean, he raised taxes and mm -hmm. total liberal. And even his and, son and was— George W. Bush wanted to do an immigration, um, um, you know, uh, uh, a uh, amnesty, um, you know, which I thought was a good idea yeah. myself. Uh, but, yeah, he was no raving social conservative. So I, I, so I was just simply wrong, I thought. You know, in the past, this anti-establishmentarianism has tended to coalesce around a, a, a Pat Buchanan sort of type. And I considered—the I, reason I was so tough on Huckabee was I considered him to be the best candidate of that bunch— that, and that is to say, the most I considered him the most likely. If there was going to be a social conservative revolt against the establishment, I considered Huckabee to be the strongest candidate advocating that. And so I really shredded him in there. And like now, I totally apologize. You know, first I think I was a little, a little too hard on him, and second, you were harsh on the religion. I, I was harsh <laughs> on the religion. Yeah, yeah. Even though I'm a religious person. Um, uh, I was harsh, harsh on, the, uh, on the religion. And, uh, you know, looking back at it, I think I made a preemptive strike on a target that wasn't there. <laughs> Not the first time that, that that's ever happened. It's okay. You're a humor writer. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So then we go through into the primaries and just one by one, and and again, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I sort of view primaries as like almost like watching uh, the Hunger Games or something. Yeah, like, yeah. It's more like you're not really analyzing what their issues are because no. we ne nobody ever really says what their issues are. They, that's all kind of yeah. like BS uh, as yeah. part of the game. Right. But like just strategically, we just watch this one guy pick them off like like targets, you know, one at a time. Each had a flaw, which of course is you know to be expected. Every candidate does. But each one's particular flaw turned out to be fatal. And I think there was like a certain amount of just dumb bad luck involved in this, you know. Jeb Bush uh, was uh, – I, I saw him at a small town meeting in New Hampshire. Um, he was great. He was absolutely great. Completely plausible as president, warm, outgoing, handled the questions really well. But, his, but he had that last name. You know, and, you know, the uh, a lot of people wouldn't vote for Hillary for that very same reason. And, you know, and that Jeb was just, 
it wasn't going to happen for Jeb. Is there um, any way strategically he could have distanced himself, not from the name, but let's say, is there any way he could have said, I stand for the people who feel like they have no control? I don't think so, no. He's too much of an establishment figure. But he'd been a darn good governor of Florida. But he was very lukewarm campaigner in larger settings. He was good in small groups, but in larger settings, he was tepid. What does that mean? He would make a weak speech or he wasn't yeah, funny? Yeah, it just wasn't like, what did he just say? You know, I mean, did, he, didn't, he didn't show force of pers personality. Mm -hmm. He didn't, you know, there was something unleaderly-like about him in, 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 in appearance. I don't I, think that was... I, I thought Marco Rubio was going to be a much stronger candidate. Me too. And he just, like, not seasoned in the, in the barrel long enough, you know? He got, um, you, you know this phenomenon. I, my heart, when he got stuck on that, Obama didn't, isn't, didn't do this by accident. When he got stuck on that, I was just crying for him out of sympathy because... Anybody who's done a lot of interviews, like when I'm promoting this book, I'll do like a, uh, I'll sit down in the studio and I'll do uh, 10 minutes on 10 or 12 uh, uh, talk radio shows in a row. And you get down to the point where around you're around about number eight, where you go, did I just say that to the last person who interviewed me or did I just say that? <laughs> and that's what happened to Marco Rubio. You know, he'd been out saying this stuff over and over and over again and, he, and, the, and the needle got stuck in the groove. You know? That was sort of like his Rick Perry moment. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, um, uh, listeners uh, who don't understand that uh, metaphor of needle stuck in the groove, uh, wiki it. <laughs> right, it's an old... Yeah. It has been yeah. records for a while. Yeah, haven't been any records for a By while. By the way, Rick Perry with the glasses, he yeah. kind of like tried to, <laughs> no. just with a single pair of glasses, he tried to say, I'm an intellectual. Yeah. Forget man. about what happened four years ago, yeah. but that didn't work for him. People saw right through that. It's not like he's Clark Kent. But you know, Superman. my heart went out to him too, in a way, when that when he couldn't remember the federal agencies he was going to eliminate. I mean, haven't we all had that moment? You know, I mean, sure. everybody who's over forty has had that moment. <laughs> sure, but I but but there's Ron Paul sitting right next to him in the '60s, saying, yeah. you know, poking at it. like he yeah. saw the weakness, and that's yeah. a professional. He poked at it and got him. He did. Yeah. But like, but like, you know, I had a chance during this election and bef right before the primaries actually to meet Rand Paul. Also, you said you yeah, met I Rand liked Paul. Rand. Oh, yeah, he seemed like a straight shooter. Absolutely. Uh, a great guy. Again, this is Rand the Younger, not yeah, Ron. Not, not Ron. Although I, I know Ron, too, and I really Ron's like Ron. Ron's been on this but podcast. I, I, I'm not, um, um, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I want Ron for my president, you know, but that takes nothing away from how I feel about him. As, I mean, he is, you know, guy's committed um, to his, you know, he's, he, he reasons out, he's got a set of values. He reasons out those set of values. He's a little unrelenting about it, you know, but. You know, I, I in, huge respect for him. In my podcast with him, I remember I asked him, you know, you've been in, you, you were in Congress however many years, yeah. 25 years. You got like one bill passed that entire time. You're, it seems like you're totally dysfunctional. But he had, but to his credit, he, had he a took a question to like that, that and had a great response. Yeah. So, uh, you know, don't you wish there were more like me that <laughs> only got one bill passed? Right. Or he basically kind of threw it at Congress that he yeah. like had ideas, but, you know, he couldn't really, he wasn't Nobody really was going to play the party yeah. line. But I, you know, I had a couple long talks with, 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 with Rand. I really liked him. Um, he does not. Um, he has not yet learned how to translate his ideas into the kind of sound bites that you need to campaign. 
But maybe he'll he'll never do that because maybe, maybe. that's the reason why you liked him is that he was a human being. He was, he was like someone you would being. sit down like on the porch and you're just yeah. talking about what happened in the newspaper. And you day. could ask him about an issue and he would say, which this is really rare among politicians, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I really have to do more due diligence on that and think think it through more. That's a very tough question, you know. I, so, I sort of felt like— This was like back—this is like, you know, not during the campaign. It's like back two years before the campaign when I was talking to him. Yeah, I, I sort of felt like almost like he's a liberal libertarian. He is. <laughs> so, yeah. so like, okay, he'll fall back on, well, let's let the market decide. Mm -hmm. But unlike moral issues where it's pretty clear, mm -hmm. it's not so black and white for him. No, of course not. No, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, say health insurance. I mean, I'm very conservative about, um, I don't want a single player national health service stuff, but large, wealthy nation like us, Nobody should be beggared by their medical costs. Nobody should lose their house because right. of medical costs. The boat, maybe, but not the house, you know? And I don't think that, it, in my mind, it wouldn't be that hard to create a catastrophic insurance program that covered everybody in the country. But, you know, never mind. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Instead of trying to solve like a massive problem uh, all at once, why not start with, okay, everybody gets catastrophic insurance? Yeah, Which exactly. is the main thing. Like, for instance, I only have catastrophic. Like, oh, me too. I so, mean, I'm self-employed and, 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 you know, I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm on Medicare now, so whatever, you know, but. You're an old man. I'm an old man, yeah. But for years, uh, uh, and we still have it for the rest of the family, we have catastrophic. And, and the theory, you know, is what we would try and find the largest deductible we could get as long as the top end was very high. Because our figure is, you know, got say we got now four members of the family covered by the insurance. And so what if the, the not so what, but I mean, okay, the deductible is 5000 Everything goes wrong that year. It's $20,000. That will hurt, but it doesn't destroy. Right. You know, and it, it doesn't wipe us out, you know. And on even, the other, even, even for an impoverished, like a, a family living in poverty, Twenty thousand is is of course amazingly difficult. They can't yeah. pay it, yeah. but they can work it out. It's not going um, to plague them for generations. Lives. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's right. And for the poorest people, we could bring that you know that that minimum down considerably to some right. percentage of their of their their income, something like you know the old um, standard for tax deductibility of medical expenses was ten percent. If it was ten percent of your more than ten percent of your income, you could deduct. Hmm. The um, uh, before we got all complicated about this. So, so you said though every candidate had a fatal flaw. I would argue Trump had a fatal flaw. And again, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, he I'm seemed to have advocate. hundreds of them. Yeah. He seemed to have hundreds of them. I mean, you know, not a day would go by he wouldn't say or do something. You say, well, that's the end of that. You know. I mean, finally, when that Billy Bush tape came out, you go, oh, forget it. You know, I mean, you're you, you're not president. I thought this right down to election night. In fact, when I went, when I finally got tired of watching election results, I mean, I wasn't maybe had a couple of drinks, so maybe I wasn't quite so alert about like, ooh, ooh there went North Carolina, ooh, ooh there went Florida. But I, I went to bed not knowing, and still sort of expecting to wake up to find Hillary president. You know, and so cool. So how did Trump do this? And in and, and the primaries first, how did he do it? Yeah, I mean, he just made a lot more noise than all the other candidates put together. Uh, yeah, each of the candidates was flawed, but he just attracted a lot more attention to himself. And he did reminded me, I mean, Trump has always reminded me of raising toddlers. You've been through this. You know how it is with kids. They, they, they want attention. They really, really want attention. Good attention is great. But if they can't get good attention, 
any attention will do. So it's like, Dad won't play Yahtzee with me, so, or, not, you know, or, or Hungry Hungry Hippo. Dad won't play Hungry Hungry Hippo with me, so I'll crawl over and drink bleach under the sink. <laughs> Kids, you know, and so Trump just loves attention and drew a huge amount of attention to him. And so, and plus, I think a lot of us, a lot of us in the news business especially, didn't really realize that people thought they knew him from The Apprentice. So it, because so he was like a friend in some he sense. He was like a friend, yeah. And the weird thing is, it, it dawned on me finally that people in the news business never watched The Apprentice. Not because we're snobs, not because we only watch like upscale PBS TV or anything like that. It's because we're in the news business. We don't want to hear the phrase, you're fired, ever, ever again. We, we know that phrase. You know? Right. So we hadn't watched that. I forced myself to watch that. And Trump's interesting. You know, he's this big, blustery, goofy guy. He's like the boss you'd love to have, not at work, but after work. So you can go to the bar and talk to your workmates, you know, and say, you won't believe what the jerk did today. You won't believe what he said today. I mean, I love the first couple seasons of The Apprentice. Like, he did a good job on TV. He plays Trump (laughs) much better than Alec Baldwin does. You know, I mean, he really plays Trump well. But then the part of The Apprentice that I hadn't thought about or known about, really, he will stop and break the fourth wall, and then he will give out this business advice. And it's not actually bad business device advice. It's sort of like posters in the break room kind of business advice, you know? You know, uh, quit dreaming, wake up and do something, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, you know? It's like, you know— uh, uh, so it's like kind of like this high level, the kind of stuff you'd find on Instagram, like photos. Yeah, but people yeah. respond to it. They like they do. like it. They click like it. And they on like that. the combination of this kind of blustery Mr. you know, this, this sort of like uh, Uncle Scrooge, uh, 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 who's the boss in the Dagwood comic strip, you know. I mean, uh, that, that, that kind of character yeah. who would every now and then stop and give you this avuncular advice. And so they felt like they kind of knew this guy. And they, and so, that you know, when he when he would do weird things, they would kill anybody else's political career. They're going, oh, that's just him, you know. That's, you know, he says stuff like that. You know what I mean? It, you know. So do you think that opens the door? Like, let's say, let's say, take someone like Marco Rubio mm-hmm. as an example. And I'll just use Twitter followers as a metric. So let's yeah. say Marco Rubio had a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers and yeah. Donald Trump in the beginning maybe had two or three million. Yeah. So do you think this opens the door in future elections for people to say, oh, I have three million Twitter followers and people sort of like me on TV or in the movies. Uh, I have a chance. Yep. Yep. It certainly does. I mean, we are definitely, we have been um, sort of moving towards the celebrity president. Um, for quite a while. Well, know. Reagan was a celebrity president. Reagan was a celebrity president. You know, uh, George H.W. Bush was not. Clinton had a little bit more of that. He wasn't a TV personality, but he kind of acted like one, you know. Um, George W. Bush, no, but Obama had that public presence. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was an, an element of uh, celebrity. You know, he's kind of a, he was kind of a up upscale celebrity, you know, I mean, you know, the people who read the New York uh, uh, Review of Books, you know, knew who he was, you know, and, and, and uh, but he was nonetheless a, a, a kind of celebrity, particularly because he wrote a very good book um, about growing up in his really peculiar set of circumstances. And also his, um, 
uh, speech at the 2004 Democratic yeah. Convention got a lot of publicity. Yeah, it was good. And, you know, he was good. And he was, you know, he was kind of cool guy, you know, and he was like— you take a road trip with him. You totally would, you know. Was it Joe Biden said, you know, he got in so much trouble for us. He's like a— uh, He's like a clean looking, good yeah, looking, yeah, very articulate. You know, uh, very articulate. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Biden how, did pick, how did Barack pick him as vice president after that? The guy <laughs> uses the most racist stereotype. Oh, I'm going to make him the second in command of the entire country. I, I think Obama <laughs> thought it was funny too, you know? because it's not like Biden was wrong. You know? I mean, he had this, you know. And of course, you know, the truth of the matter is uh, Barack Obama is no more African-American than you or I. I mean, he's got like, he is a total singularity. I mean, he always, right. he's got this like crazy hippie mom from Iowa. You know, he's raised in Hawaii by these leftist grandparents. You know, he lives in Indonesia for a while. His dad's from from Kenya. You know, there, there, there's not another one out there like that. You know, right. he's, he's got like a one, once-off life story. Um, but you know what? What he is, what category he fits in? There's, it's a category of one. You know, there is no category. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit because we'll talk about 2020. But, but, but getting back to this again. Um, so, okay, so, so everybody had their fatal flaw. Trump somehow knew how to pick at it, and he his fatal flaws were sort of washed over because people felt like you know there's that so that so called Dunbar number where everybody's allowed to everybody's brain thinks. They could know well 150 people. That's so, right. We, we, in reality, we only know about like a dozen people well. That's but right. But if someone's in your living room on TV a lot, you think you know them well. You so, think you, so, know, you think they're one of the 150. Right. So Trump, as opposed to the other primary candidates, yeah. kind of survived because he's part of people's living room. That is very much the case. And as a matter of fact, that's so much the case that I, you know, if I were rewriting this book, I would I, I'd steal that from you and put All right. that in you're, there. Yeah. You're welcome in the next article you yeah. write about this. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, that's that's definitely the case. And then Bernie Sanders, I would say Bernie Sanders versus Hillary on the other side of the issue. So Bernie Sanders had a lot of passionate supporters, so passionate, like you said, they didn't, when they, when Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary, these supporters didn't even vote for Hillary. Yeah. But Bernie Sanders might have been the only one with a consistent platform, the only mm -hmm. guy who actually believed in his platform. Mm -hmm. It was a scary platform, but it was consistent. Right. And he broke he it down it. why it was scary, but yeah. he believed it. Oh yeah, yeah, I, and I believe he believed in it, you know. And he's, you know, so obviously a straight shooter. I mean, he's like the, he's like the uh, the Ron Ron Paul of the left. You right. Know? I mean, he's like, uh, 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 is you know, he, or or he's the Pat Buchanan of the left. I mean, when he says it, he means it. You know. Yeah. And people really, really were attracted to that. I don't think that Bernie would have stood a chance in the general election because he's just too alien a type for most regular Americans, you know. Yeah, it's a 76-year-old bald Jewish guy with a heavy accent. Who's, who's been living in Vermont, you know, for for, 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 for like a millennium and, and and hasn't lost his Brooklyn accent. Right. <laughs> but here, here's the thing about, like, you, you compare his platform um, just now to Pat Buchanan. Think about Pat Buchanan is, his fatal fatal flaw almost is that he was like this weird Holocaust denier too. He had like these, some weird side things. Yeah, Whereas he did. Bernie Sanders simply just said, okay, let's try to take care of everyone, which even if you do it in a, in a, in a way that doesn't technically work, people hear those first words sure and do. say that, yeah. oh, that makes sense. Let's take care yeah. of everyone. Yeah. yeah, and it's not a wrong sentiment, mm -hmm. you know. I've never disagreed with the left because, uh, I mean, with the, with the, with the, 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 the in, intelligent, with liberals, let's say, you know, liberals and the and the decent, intelligent members of the uh, of the left, I've never objected to their aim. 
you know, their ultimate aim, which is to make life good for everybody. You know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I think that their heart is in the right place, but it's, you know, not for nothing that they're called bleeding hearts, you know, so it's just, you know, and Bill Buckley's always had a great response to um, people on the left who would tell him something like, you know, there should be a basic minimum income for everybody in the United States or, you know, single-payer health care. He would say, that is a nice idea. That's a nice idea. And he wasn't being, like, bitterly ironic about that. He meant it. It was a nice idea. It just can't be done, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just physically, materially impossible. Or or it's hard. Like, let's say the country was wealthier. Let's say we were Yeah, say, say really, really, you know, twice as wealthy. Yeah, then it might be possible. And and by the way, more things are possible every year with technology and yeah, so absolutely, on. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, you know, we've come a long way on this front. And, but, you know, the other thing is that uh, the liberals and the left often don't see is the price that comes with these, you know, I mean, we've had a, uh, a pretty good social uh, uh, um, safety net in place now since the 60s. And we have yet, you know, in certain ways, certain pockets of poverty are worse than ever. Why right. is that? Even though the funding for the for the, the post mid sixties funding for these d- disadvantaged people is much greater, and the programs available much more than much many more of them, uh, and yet the, their life situation is actually in many cases worse than it was before the the, the, the you know. Lyndon Johnson's great leap forward. Well, and Why? The, the, this this goes down to the whole question of who is the better allocator of capital? Is, yeah. is it should should Capitalist? us individual <laughs> right? So should individuals hold on to their money and create businesses and hire and, people for and jobs? And indeed, charities. Yeah, and or should the government allocate capital? And government, government turns out to be not so good. At right, it, but yeah. nobody seems to really get that because the idea, the sentiment is a nice yeah, idea. The sentiment is a nice idea. And the thing is that these are the issues that, and this is why I, you know, would call for America to have a, a radical, radical moderates, you know, because these are things that really need to be thrashed out, you know, I mean, and they can be thrashed but out. But like, but like, let's just, and again, I, I, I have never voted. Some people say that's horrible of me, whatever. I, I try to create impact where I can, but some people would say, like, Bill Clinton was a radical moderate. I mean— and There was something to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he had some other problems. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and there's something to that. And then um, what's, what, what is up with Hillary in the general election? She wins the popular vote, but you kind of piece it together in the book. Like, she almost looked like, uh, like guilty in the debates. Like, she couldn't really get it together, whereas he— She is just a terrible campaigner. She is just a terrible campaigner. I have it on good—I've never met her. Um, I was at a small dinner uh, uh, having to do with, like— something, It was a very odd dinner. It was uh, a dinner celebrating the art that we put around at our embassies all around the world. Which, which is actually not very good, but some of it is very nice. <laughs> Again, government so allocating, uh, yeah, government capital. allocating capital. It's all you know. It's all abstract, and so it won't offend anybody or anything. And uh, anyway, she was she was funny. She was charming. She gave a little talk at this dinner. You know, I didn't actually get to meet her, but I sat with one of her aides, and and we had a very nice, very pleasant dinner. And I've been told by any number of people who would know uh, that she can be very warm and funny and so on in person. Yet the minute she gets up on the stump, um, something goes wrong. You know? I, I think it's almost like 
she has bad media trainers. Like somehow, whoever told her to act that way during the debates was just wrong. You are so right about that. My wife was uh, uh, worked for um, uh, a PR and a marketing firm in Washington uh, until she left to start the O'Rourke Child, Dog, and Chicken Farm uh, up, up in New Hampshire. The prestigious O'Rourke. Yes, the uh, prestigious, <laughs> yes, where she is CEO. Um, the uh, Anyway, she kept looking at Hillary and saying, we did this all the time. You know, we would have these like corporate CEOs who are just terrible on television and we can, it can be fixed. Yeah. You know, we'd send them to somebody and they would fix it. I mean, you can't turn everybody into Ronald Reagan, but you know, you, you can turn them into George W. Bush. Well, know? she said 30 years in the public eye to you get better. You would think, <laughs> I mean, does she refuse to listen? Are people scared to tell her? Or, or I don't know what it is. Does she feel... That, you know, she's being patronized when people tell her to change, you know, her, um, is she is she insecure about who she is and feels that, like, if she were to put a little polish on this, it would be somehow a betrayal of her innermost whatevers, you know? I, I just haven't got the slightest idea. But, yeah, her you would look at her problems and, and the extent of her experience in public life and you would say, this is so fixable. So, so it what? didn't get fixed. <laughs> So, I mean, basically, I mean, setting the popular vote aside, which is a big issue for people, but clearly yeah. he had a strategy where, okay, this is the way, it's the same as the primaries. This is the path to winning. I don't need to think about the popular vote. I need to think about where to get the electors. That is what I tell, when people hold up that popular vote thing, and of course we went through this with, with, with Al Gore also, I said, you know, you really don't know. Um, you really don't know what the outcome was because the if this if we elected presidents by means of popular vote, the campaigning would be so different, and indeed the candidates might be different. The whole structure of an American presidential race would be so radically different if it were a campaign for 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 popular strictly for popular votes that I don't think you can one I don't think one can safely predict what the outcome would have been in yeah, any given election. Also, in gen if, it, if it was just popular vote, chances are whoever was either the governor of California or New York would win every election. Maybe, maybe. But at the same time, there's, you know, sort of a nationwide resentment against California in a way. You know, there's, you know, that feeling especially strong out in the Midwest that every now and then the nation gets tilted and everything that's loose rolls out to California. Right. <laughs> But if you get all of California's votes and all of New York's votes, then you, you got just pick it. up yeah, a few you in Chicago. A, if, you can, if you can find a candidate, you know, and of course that's how, basically how most liberal candidates, post-World War II liberal candidates have won the election was, you know, getting the two coasts together and picking up a little in Chicago. So so, so let me ask you this. Like, you know, you, you, I, I feel like this book doesn't come across as liberal or Republican. And and like you say, you're, you're you, you, you grudgingly endorsed Hillary right. and it was a little bit of a, a goof. Let's just look at the presidency in general. When has there ever been a quality president? Because yeah. like, I'm even wondering, what do, obviously it's written into law. There's various things the president does. And without him, you kind of, you, you, need, a, you need an executive branch. But who has been a good president ever? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you have to go back to somebody like Lincoln. Um, and even Lincoln, um, um, you know, uh, suspended habeas corpus. He, uh, you can almost date like the um, 
um, excessive, what I consider to be the excessive power of the chief executive. You can almost date it back to 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 to, to Lincoln's time in office. Um, you know that he vastly expanded the powers of the president, or assumed powers that the president, you know, had not previously been. Um, hadn't previously known he had, you know, and uh, that does not take away anything from him being a great man. But you know, it shows you that even the highest quality possible president uh, uh, carries certain dangers. Uh, you, you could argue there. I mean, I don't know the history that well, but J- James Buchanan, Franklin Pierce, and Millard Fillmore, like the guys before him, were so afraid to take power because yeah. they didn't want to get in the middle of that mess that Lincoln was just restoring some balance there. But let's, yeah. just, let's just even say since Lincoln, okay, because Lincoln could be an argument either way, but let, let's just, I mean, not really an argument, but the, yeah. a lot of people will talk, uh, the talk with Lincoln. But but since Lincoln, who has has earned the right to say I was a good president? Uh, I would say Eisenhower. All right. Uh, a very country grew. Country grew. Peaceful. The guy was very moderate. He uh, got us was, out of North Korea. He was not um, way ahead of the curve on social issues, but it was Eisenhower's belief. I was just reading um, Philip Johnson, a British journalist, and he emphasized that Eisenhower felt that many of the social problems that he faced that they were difficult, not not intractable, but but he felt we would grow that with increasing prosperity we would grow out of them. And it's the single most important thing was that America have a balanced budget and have capital available for greater investment and greater growth. And we, of course, know from his farewell address that he was skeptical about uh, huge military budgets and huge corporations that benefited from those huge uh, uh, military budgets. A very good, very moderate, modest um, president. The problem even with that is, like, so during his terms, he executed on that and things mm, seemed well. Yeah. And then immediately afterwards, we're in Vietnam, which right. led to the yeah, inflation, and, yeah, the depression, yeah, yeah. the recessions. And yeah. then you can argue the same thing with Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge maybe believed the same way. And yeah. then just two years later, the Great Depression started. Yeah. And World War II shortly and, after And also that. Coolidge's relative inactivity, although I think it was a benign inactivity, uh, led to the election of Hoover, who was not in of himself a bad president, but he was one. Lo- he was a technocrat, and a lot of the Roosevelt program, the the, the program that we credit or blame, uh, 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 Roosevelt New Deal, pro- actually started under Harding. Uh, Harding was very much in favor of the same general kind of program. Harding was then. Uh, 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 I don't mean Harding. I'm sorry, Hoover. Uh, Harding was kind of a bum, uh, but 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 uh, and kind of a you know a bunch of corrupt um, buddies. But Hoover, uh, who was to go on to prove himself to be an absolutely wonderful person, I mean he he kept Europe from starving in in the in the uh, midst and in the aftermath of World War II. He was basically the guy who got the relief over there properly distributed and kept the continent you know from from uh, from starvation. But as a president, you know, he was one of these technocrats, you know, let the experts fix it. He was our first managerial president. Mm. And so a lot of the things, I mean, obviously Franklin Roosevelt was a great president in terms of like lifting the national morale and getting us through like a really dangerous period. But um, he left a legacy of huge government behind him. Um, He also was uh, cold. Uh, he, he, he He was... cold and gullible at the same time. He was cold about the Jewish refugee 
uh, uh, situation. We have plenty of space and opportunity in America to take in everybody that could, that we could get here. Mm. And there was no, he didn't do that. Um, it was fine if you were a big fancy intellectual, you know, or a famous artist or something. But if you were just some schmo, you know, uh, 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 peddling things on the street, you know, in Belarus, no, <laughs> you know, right. no. And uh, he was trusting of Stalin. That's probably not forgivable. Mistake number one. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably not forgivable. So, so twenty twenty. Um, you know, you you. Okay, so so in between now and 2020, yeah, Trump does you know whether you like Trump or not, it seems like he's going to have a hard time wrangling in Congress. Yeah, McCain and his faction who yeah. control the Senate don't like him. No, Paul Ryan probably doesn't like him. It's a little yeah. unclear. He's playing yeah. a game. Yeah. So how's Trump ever going to win anything in Congress? And how no one's going to win anything for the next four years in Congress? Yeah, and of course that Congress is going to turn on him. In um, uh, I fully expect the predictable post-election switch in in in, in represent. Even though Congress is pretty stiffly gerrymandered, you know, and and has a lot of safe seats in it, I still think that the Democrats are going to take a majority in both houses. Really? Yeah. In um, twenty eighteen. Yeah, or or come so close as to be as good as you know. Mm. So so they're in the the obstructive position that the Republicans are. And the other thing with Does Trump, Trump go crazy with that in the sense that he starts making everything an executive order? He tries, but there's a limit to that, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Congress holds the money, you know, when it comes down to it. So, you know, as, as was proven um, during the little tiff that they had in Britain between the king and the long par parliament, you know, ultimately who holds the purse strings, you know, uh, uh, runs the show and mm -hmm. Congress holds the purse strings. And um, also... America's had these flare-ups of populism, um, which I, you know, very, I think we were talking about it earlier. One of the things about populism, I mean, first place, it's a gimme thing. It's like, um, I want something from the government, gimme, you know, and it's also like a takey thing. It's like your government's giving stuff to other people and I don't want it. I don't want the government giving, them, you know, so don't give it to... Don't give it to the East Coast bankers, you know, give it to us Indian-hating, lunatic, slave-owning Jackson, President Jackson era, um, people who muddied up the carpets of the White House. So we've had these prior, like Jackson. It's, Jackson was the last time a populist actually got in the White House. They usually don't make it that far. It's usually more of a thing like the Know Nothing Party. God love the Know Nothing Party. At least they came right out and said that they right, knew nothing. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know. I forget, Was uh, there was a president, right? It was... was uh, was Zachary Taylor in the Know Nothing Party? Or? Um, no, it was Franklin Pierce, although okay, he Franklin only Pierce. ran on the Know Nothing target after he had been president of the United right. States. So he doesn't quite qualify as a Know Nothing candidate, although close. <laughs> he was drunk. Um, the um, uh, Usually it's sort of a um, um, uh, William Jennings Bryan kind of populism. You know, Bryan, like, 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 rose to fame with uh, um, basically on the promise he said America you know a lot of Americans don't have enough money so we'll print more because that works <laughs> I mean as we know from Weimar Germany and so on um and you know he, he sort of burned out um he he had the Democratic nomination I think four different times and never right. won and um 
Wilson made him Secretary of State, and he's an avowed pacifist. You know, and next thing Wilson turns around, gets us into World War One. So that was, an, and ends up, you know, making a monkey of himself to Scopes trial. You know, uh, uh, so American populism is this tendency to burn out before it does too much damage. Although in the case of Jackson, Trail of Tears, expulsion of American Indians from every place east of the Mississippi. But but I would uh, say though, destruction Ameri- of the banking system. I mean, the Amer the America now is so different. From America, then in the in and oh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll just point to look what it costs to live in a city like mm-hmm. Manhattan or Los Angeles compared to what it costs to live in you know Toledo, Trump Ohio, Trump, Trump territory. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that disparity is very distressing to many people. It's yeah. it's like what you're it referring is. to is the people yeah. who feel they have no control versus the people who have all the control. But eventually, uh, because of popul- because of populist scapegoating and because of populist um, um, incompetence, uh, like William Jennings Bryan totally misunderstanding the nature of monetary supply, um, generally the the populist fervor wears out. And like I say, it's unusual for a populist to get in, in the White House. And Andrew Jackson, in fairness, had more bona fides, you know, to to, to be president. You know. It was, especially if we were going to fight a war. You know, I mean, he was not somebody, he's somebody you wanted on your side if right. you were going to fight a war. But, um, um, which I suppose is what Trump means by the Civil War, I don't know. You know, <laughs> Trump's grasp of history doesn't strike me as being, having much breadth or depth. But, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I, what I think will probably happen is not all that much. I think we'll muddle through one term of Trump as president. He's going to lose control. He doesn't have control of Congress now, but he's going to completely lose control of Congress in, in 18. And then we'll have, you know, sort of, a, a, you know, I'm sure it'll be, there'll be a lot of fireworks, but, you know, it'll be more, you know. I mean, there's going to be a free-for-all on both sides. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be a, yeah. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But 
Now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You don't mention any names really for 2020 in, in this book, but like th throw out some names. Like, you know, you mentioned Barack Obama as a singularity, but what about like Cory Booker? Cory Booker, yeah. I mean, Cory Booker would be a good, strong candidate, I would think. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, if the Democrats want to lose, you know, if they, they really feel like losing. Um, Bernie will be over 100 by then, so I don't think he's going to be too much of a threat. Coming up on the Republican side, I don't know. You know, a seasoned Marco, Marco Rubio might be, well be forgiven his 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 slip ups. He's going to he needs to kind of grow into his persona. But you know, I, I, I kind of like him. You know, I saw him again at one of these town hall meetings um, and with a somewhat larger audience than, than than Jeb Bush had. He was good. He was really good. He was sympathetic. He got some squirrely questions from the audience. Some one of those you know details veteran benefit details thing from a, a guy who looked like he was certainly Vietnam, might have even been a Korea vet, you know. And um, Marco was very patient mm. answering the guy and very polite and so on, even though he was like, you know, about half cracked. Uh, um, and he was very good at explaining his positions and so on. So he, he, he might come back for, um, I don't know, I think it's too soon to tell, you know. Yeah, we don't know what's yeah. in it. But you know, then again, in two thousand eight, Obama had already in two thousand four, Obama had already made his name with the you know convention, mm -hmm. um, the two thousand four convention, and McCain had always been kind of in. We already knew McCain was going to be probable, and then in twenty twelve again, like Romney's always been around the 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 picture. I sort of feel like twenty twenty, it is too soon to tell yeah. for the first time. Although. Well, not really, because I think you really had to be a close student of politics to have seen Obama coming. Yeah. He was kind of a, I mean, you know, it was very late in the day that it became clear that he was the better candidate than than Hillary Clinton. And even later in the day when it became clear that he was going to be nominated. Right. Because you know? um, the two are not, <laughs> the two are two different things. Um, so, and I, I don't, you know, even though I cover politics, I don't think I was paying close enough attention. I didn't, I didn't spot Obama 
um, uh, ahead of time. Who would be a surprise to you in 2020? Who who are you not spotting now? Even though it's sort of a weird question because if you're not spotting them, then you don't know. Yeah, but. right. That's one of those unknown unknowns. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Uh, I I I wonder if they'll be. Who who have you discounted so much where they they might surprise you? They have some. Yeah, well, that would be vision. Elizabeth Warren because I think the burnout of populism is going to affect the left as well as it affects the right. So, and I think that there may be an attempt for the Democrats to play catch up ball and say, well, okay, we'll nominate a populist, you know, and it'll be too late. What what about ever like um, you know now that we've had a so called celebrity candidate like Donald Trump? What about ever someone just totally out of left field like a Bill Gates or? A Larry Page, a technocrat, or, a technocrat. Yeah. yeah, I mean the response to uh, um, to Roosevelt and to a lesser extent Truman's extremely intrusive expansion of government was not at all what people thought. People thought, well, you know, it'll be Adlai Stevenson; he'll carry the torch, you know. But people t- picked a quiet competence of uh, of Dwight Eisenhower, not exactly a technocrat, but you know, quiet, competent, man- managerial type. So and a hero. You, and a hero, of yeah. course. Yeah, a big hero. Though, you know, it's interesting about um, Eisenhower is he never saw combat. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, he was an uh, officer, young officer. the head officer. of NATO, the NATO command. Yeah, I know it. Uh, and he was picked because of his remarkable ability, very clear thinking and remarkable ability to get along with people and make mm-hmm. people get along with each other. Uh, which was no small matter uh, with when you had De Gaulle and Montgomery and Churchill and all um, and Stalin. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe there'll be a return to it. There'll be a new, you know, if you were going to, to, to advance spot a, a trend, you know, maybe the, the new seriousness you know, might, might, might be a good one. Or it could be, you know, some Jeff Bezos, you know, it could be a, a technocrat. You know? yeah. I mean, when you think how much better off we would be uh, right now if Mike Bloomberg were president. Um, yeah. He was a great mayor here. I mean, he's a yeah, mayor yeah, here. He's tank, right? yeah, a little. Uh, I, 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 I know Mike a little bit. You know, I like to tease him about the. Uh, you know, his, why didn't he run? Uh, he he ran the numbers. It. He ran the numbers. Um, he ran the numbers, and he, he really dislikes Trump. And he could not figure out a way for uh, him to uh, run as a third party candidate, or to even to challenge Trump, that wouldn't help Trump win. Was basically what it's coming. Kind of, that's what I'm told. I mean, he didn't tell that to me himself. He's kind of said so in so many words. And I ask around, and yeah, yeah, he 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 put people on it, and you know, nobody does the numbers like like Mike. So uh, I, I'm I'm think I'm guessing he was right. Let's uh, talk career. It's like you've been doing this since the '70s. How did you? I mean, anybody. When I say dream career, anybody would love to just write funny books about smart, intelligent things and travel around and make a good living doing it all of their lives. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been extremely fortunate and it was none of it was planned. Um, uh, you know, I went to school in the 60s, which was not like an, an era of advanced planning, <laughs> to say the least, you know, be here now, live in the moment. And uh, I majored in English in college, basically because uh, in those days, you didn't have to pick your major until, I don't know, sophomore year or sometime. I'm a product of the 60s, you know, no advanced planning whatsoever. Live in the moment, be here now, you know. I mean, duh. Ah, there is no future. <laughs> of course, actually, some people would go on to prove that is literally the case. So I, I, I was an English major, and the reason I was an English major was I was going through the course catalog. You didn't, in my day, you didn't have to pick your major until, like, even end of sophomore year or something. You had 
you know, the core curriculum courses that you had to take. So I'm looking to pick a major and uh, I'm going through the course catalog and I see English. And I said, I speak that. <laughs> How hard could it be? Right. So I, 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 and I was also, I was on a scholarship and so I had to maintain a B average. So I took the combination of things that were easy, easy that I liked. I liked to read, you know, and, and that were easiest for me and it would be most likely and that I could BS my way through. Because, you know, you're taking uh, physics, you can't BS your way through that, you know, or the world explodes, you know, or the planets collide. And uh, I, I, so I needed to maintain that B average. So I became an English major. And then um, uh, I did pretty well at being an English major because you can BS your way through it. And I got a fellowship to go to grad school. And so, again, I picked the easiest thing I could find to use the fellowship well, on. What's that? I'm going to have to go back to grad school now. Yeah, it was like, uh, uh, it was a, a creative writing course at Johns Hopkins. It okay. was a writing seminar at Johns Hopkins, and that looked, that looked easy. Just had a, you know, very, very minimal um, uh, course load and like very minimal bunch of stuff that you had to turn out. It was only one year, and you got your MA. And so I did that and had a great time, and I got out of college. And, um, uh, and Johns Hopkins... Uh, creative writing was was John Barth a professor there? He was not. No, I think he was at one time, but not when I was there. It was um, it was run by a um, now his name is going to to elude me. He was an an incomprehensible American poet of the Ezra Pound generation. In mm -hmm. fact, much influenced by Ezra Pound. Indeed, he was probably one of the last people left speaking to Ezra Pound when Ezra Pound huh. finally kicked off. He would actually go see him at St. Mary's Hospital and so on. Um, the heck was his name? Anyway, um, um, Mockingbirds at Fort McHenry was his was his well known poem, and it's not very well known. There's a very understandable reason for that. So I get out of you know get out of school, and uh, uh, now what? <laughs> so I I thought well you know I've been doing all this reading and a certain amount of writing that goes with the reading, and I I must know how to write, which was not the case. I didn't. But uh, I didn't know that yet. And so I had, meanwhile, had become friends with some people in Baltimore who were running one of the underground newspapers of the 60s. And this, this, this was like 1970. 60s were a little bit over, but we didn't know it yet. And uh, so I went and crashed. You know, I, I wouldn't say I went to work for them exactly, but I went over and crashed at the, their, at the office of the underground newspaper and you know, uh, when, when we get too broke, we would go out and sell the paper on the street, you know, for a quarter apiece, you know, and then go get something to eat. And um, it was fun. Uh, uh, and I did that for a while. And then it uh, dawned on me that if I was actually going to try and make a living as, as, as a writer, as opposed to having a crash pad as a writer, I probably needed to go to New York because New York was to at that time, you know, still is. And how old were you then? Like, when did you feel like, okay, now I got to take this seriously? I was maybe, uh, I was in my early 20s. Let's see, I was like, turned 23 in 1970 when I was doing that underground newspaper stuff. And it was probably about, yeah, 24, 25 or something before I sort of snapped out of being, you know, do you really want to be a hippie forever? <laughs> but it just goes to show, though, it's not like you have to be 18 and on like your strict career path oh, like, no. you, like you were interested in these things yeah. you dabbled but you kind of said okay now i'm going to start taking it seriously mm. at age 25 and then still you it's not like you then kind of 
turned out a bestseller then, like that began your apprenticeship of writing. As and a matter of fact, on my 25th birthday, I was living on, uh, I was living on Second Street in the East Village. Uh, between Avenue B and Avenue C, or as they were called, this is like nineteen. That was like a death trap. <laughs> oh, I tell you, it was. It was like, we called it Firebase Baker and Firebase Charlie. You know, I mean, it was. Oh yeah, I'm living in this walk up. Uh, uh, you know, one room walk up apartment with the with a well one and a half rooms with the with the bathtub in the in the kitchen. You know, the whole the whole Lower East Side schmear. And uh, um, I, I turned 25, 1972, and I remember having like a almost like sort of a breakdown. I am sitting there drinking beer thinking, I am 25 years old. I have done F all. I have- And so many people 25 think that. And I wish just once they would relax. Yeah, of I always you try and tell people that age. I say, actually, funnily enough, the toughest age of all is like your early 20s when you're like done with school and you really haven't gotten your footing in your career. So that can be a really tough time. You know, people talk about midlife crisis and they talk about, you know, the the, the horrors of getting old and so on. And so but actually, that mid-20s, that can be a bear. You know? Because you feel like you need to be doing something. Yeah, need when, to have done something and I hadn't. Right, you know? and, yeah. and the reality is nobody really has. Like only no, anecdotes yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg anecdotes, did. <laughs> anecdotes have, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg and, yeah, statistically, the the, the the number of people who have accomplished anything by 25 is zero. Right. You know, I mean, as a statistical average, it's zero. And But I remember sitting there just feeling awful about myself, you know, and that— um, and then, you know, not long after that, I got a job with a weekly newspaper, a grown-up weekly newspaper in New York, long gone. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a failing enterprise, which turned out to be a good thing because I started as a messenger and wound up as managing editor on the course of about four months because the place was falling apart and people were leaving, you know. So it's an, my other advice to kids is like, you know, either start with something that's brand new, you know, because, uh, you know, you'll be in on the ground floor if it works and, you know, nothing's lost if it doesn't. Or go to work for like a failing enterprise, like right. Newsweek or something, you know, because you will be valuable as as, as older people with the bigger nut, you know, and uh, 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 more complications in their life flake away from this failing enterprise. You know, go right for to work for Playboy for gosh sake, you know, for something that is circling the drain. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna apply to Playboy tomorrow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, and you know, I was just hanging around in New York uh, trying to make a, you know, working at this newspaper and trying to do some freelance stuff and uh, did a little stuff, you know, worked, uh, worked, wrote for uh, the uh, 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 East Village Other, which was a big underground newspaper in the time. It was kind of the competition for the Village Voice and sort of scrambling along. And one of the guys that I worked with at the East Village Other knew somebody who knew somebody at National Lampoon, you know, and we went and pitched an idea to Doug Kenny, one of the founders. And well, Doug, what was the idea? Oh, I know. It was some harebrained thing about uh, Michael Roosevelt, or my, not Michael Roosevelt, uh, Michael Rockefeller, you know, who had disappeared in New yeah. Guinea, about how he was actually alive and, like, doing a sort of Kurtz, you know, thing. He yeah. was, you know, building a private army in the— uh, I, can't, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember why they let us do it anyway. But we did it, and uh, and they published it. And I guess, you know, it was uh, maybe it was a month when there was some short on material. And, you know, we got paid a lot for us, you know, and, um, uh, and you know, and it went for there. I, 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 lo- I had always liked the Lampoon from the moment it came out in 1970. And I thought, this really looks like fun. So I just kind of kept plugging away. I wasn't a natural 
humor writing, and I wasn't as well educated as some of those kids who started it. You know, because there's a lot of Harvard kids at the oh, National Lampoon. Oh yeah, because there's the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, they left the Harvard Lampoon and started the National Lampoon. Exactly. Lampard. You know, um, um, Doug Kenny and and Henry Beard, and and, and there was a, a third guy, uh, um, 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 Rob. Jesus, uh, my mind is not. Uh, anyway, there were three of them from 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 the Harvard Lampoon. And um, they, uh, yeah, they were really good. And they had brought in some other people from the Harvard Lampoon. George Trow wrote for the New Yorker for years. You know, he was he was writing for the National Lampoon. Well, too. What do you think? What do you think is so? The National Lampoon quickly became one of the, I guess, known as one of the funniest magazines in the country. And I mean, yeah. and then it spawned off movies like you know Animal House and yeah. Vacation and so yeah. on. You know, with with all these, these became like iconic, you yeah. know, funny movies, co- comedy yeah. movies. What do you think is the, like, and you said you weren't good at this type of writing. What, what's the skill for like humor writing? Like, what? How do you get better at humor writing? What's what are some of the elements? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I think it helps to have been brought up in a family that communicated with humor. I mean, my advantage, and I think this was some of the other people at the magazine had the same thing. I grew up in this big Irish family whose entire mode of of communicating was teasing each other and jokes and stuff. I mean, it would have to be something really, really grim, like the funeral of a child, you know, to snap my family out of that wisecracking, you know I mean? You know, if they liked something you did, they teased you about it. If they didn't like something you did, they teased you about it, you know? They, they, and, they, you know, the reaction to sorrow and tragedy and stuff was, you know, some, some kind of joke. I remember my grandfather died. My grandfather died uh, like a day or two before the 1960 election when Kennedy was was was, uh, was elected. My grandfather, as only an Irish Catholic can, I mean, really, really detested the Kennedys. You know, I mean, there's like, there's people who don't like the Kennedys and then there's a certain set of like Irish. And when they dislike I thought Kennedys, all the Irish Catholics love the Kennedys. Mm-mm, no, mm-mm. maybe in, Bo- in Boston or someplace. But, okay, like I'm Jewish. If a yeah. Jewish person ran for president, it almost doesn't. You're and I'm in. not even religious, right? Like yeah, I yeah. could barely. You'd be in. Yeah, I'm like, all right. Uh, whoever you are, yeah, I'll, I'll vote for the first time in my life because I've never voted. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of black people felt that way about Barack Obama. Actually, a lot of us who'd been through the civil rights stuff in the 60s felt that way to a certain extent about Obama. I didn't feel that. Obama, I didn't feel that way so strongly that I voted for him. But I, when he got elected, I thought this is pretty cool. You know, it's I different. can remember. Yeah, I mean, I can remember when you know he couldn't sit in the in the front of the bus. You know, and now he's president of the United States. Well, he could sit in the front of the bus because he hasn't been born. But you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I I thought it was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think the natural tendency would be. But and on the other hand, you can imagine a scenario where it's sort of. It's Bernie Madoff who's running, and you— uh, You don't want him to embarrass the race. <laughs> y- you uh, uh, can sort of see through this guy in a way the Goyam cannot. Right. <laughs> so that that's kind of the situation with Irish who hate the Kennedys. And also maybe he it was a haves versus have-nots. Like son, no, like- my grandfather was pretty well off. It was—you uh, they, they, they know, the— the old old man Joe Kennedy had been like pro Nazi, you know. He had been, um, uh, you know, he's kind of shady in his money making process. Yeah. The kids grew up in a sort of really privileged way that my grandfather didn't approve of at all. They're reckless, careless, amoral 
uh, uh, people, the Kennedys. This is, you know, be my, it's hard, you know, I was a kid, you know, but I mean, this is what my grandfather was saying, you know. I mean, that's not how he'd say it, but, you know. But, but it's funny, because you even mentioned in this book that you're like, you were like ethnically a Republican. Yeah, almost. yeah, I am. It's mostly my mother's side. But my, my grandfather was a Republican too, like most, he was a car, car dealer. Like, like most small businessmen, he was a Republican too. And he just didn't like that whole thing. And so he dies. Uh, uh, he dies right before uh, uh, Kennedy is elected. And the funeral is right at, you know, like the day after. And his sister, my great aunt Helen, comes over and says, it's a good thing your grandfather died when he did because Kevin Kennedy in the White House would have killed him anyway. You know what I mean? So that's just how my family communicates. Right. So that that's a help, you know. Uh, that's one thing. And then um, uh, I never had any trouble discerning the absurd but uh, it takes some practice to describe that absurdity, you know, to put it in. Uh, in so, in so it's a matter way. of like, let's say, uh, constantly being able to observe the absurd. Yeah. Right, and then uh, and a natural inclination towards kidding, you know. Yeah, for lack of another and natural word. inclination. But I think the natural inclination maybe could be taught. I don't know, or built through practice. Oh sure, yeah. Anything's everything's a skill, you know. I mean, one of the things people really don't realize about journalism because it set itself up because a whole bunch of people went into journalism that should have gone into Peace Corps, you know, is it's a trade. It's a trade. You know, you grow up like an Irish kid like me. You don't want to, you don't want to get up early in the morning and lift stuff. You know, you got two choices. You know, you got, uh, you got, uh, you could be a newspaper reporter or you could be a priest. So you're sitting there or thinking. A or a cop. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but a cop, that's, they, people shoot at you if you're a cop, yeah. you know. I mean, that's almost as bad as lifting things, you know. Yeah, cop, fireman, you know, but the things catch fire. You know, so if you just want to, like, look at things catching fire and look at people getting shot, you know, and you don't want to lift stuff, you know, and you like to read and so on. Uh, yeah, so it's like priest or reporter, and so you're going like— uh, Okay, but there are good journalists and bad journalists. You've had two number one New York Times bestsellers. You're, you know, you've been well-known in the space for 40 years, so— Clearly, there's a skill, oh, you know, yeah. and a set it's of a expertise. Craft. It's a craft, and it took me, you know, I'll be fair, it took me uh, a long time to learn that craft, you know. It took me from my middle 20s to my middle 30s. So, so P.J. O'Rourke, author of How the Hell Did This Happen? The Election of 2016, not only, I think you hit all, I think you hit the trifecta of informative, educational, entertaining. It's very oh, well, funny. thank you. And you have a 40-year history of writing humor and 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 funny books one of the one of the I, I, really i think humorism ha, or humorists have a long tradition you know from mark twain oh, and sure. before then yeah. and um you know you, you've been on this podcast twice i don't know if you know aj jacobs has been on this yes. podcast He's, yeah, i don't I, know him, I consider him a humorist also yeah. in that yeah. genre and just great stuff. I highly recommend this book. And I, I'm a political, I'm a fan of the political game. And this is a good breakdown of, of what happened. Oh. And I highly recommend it. And thanks for coming on the show. C come on again on for the 2020 election. Will do. Absolutely. Schedule me, pencil me in. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, VJ. You're welcome. 